Hey, this is Rachel, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org slash youngadults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. John chapter 4, 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came down to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, please, or woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Hello. Ah, Hi, everyone. It's me, Jen. Just let me get set up. I'm so excited to be here with everyone tonight and to get to speak and talk. Um, How are you guys doing? Good? Good. All right, so I want to start tonight by asking a question. Are you ready? All right. I have a pop-up. Keep popping up on my phone for iTunes. Um, Okay. What do you worship? What do you worship? I hope that for most of you, Jesus is what came to mind. But I, I want to define the word. As a favorite pastor puts it, worship is aligning your passion 
vision, energies, and your capacity towards that which matter most. I'm going to read it again. Worship is aligning your passions, vision, energies, and your capacity towards that which matter most. And so I'm going to ask you again, what do you worship? So I have, awesome. So I uh, want to tell you something. This may, not, this may come as a surprise, but I actually really don't like sports. <laughs> I know nothing about them. Um, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know that we live in the land of the Gators and the other team that's here. Um, my neighbors like the Gators. I'll, go, I'll, make, I'll make jokes. Um, but I grew up in Canada, so the only sport that actually mattered was hockey. Uh, yeah. Um, but honestly, I don't remember it being crazy. I remember my memories of it were sitting in my grandparents' living room, the lights dim, lamps on, them rocking in their lazy boys, and occasionally my grandpa making comments at the ref um, for bad calls. And then, contrast this to in eighth grade, I moved to a town that is crazy about sports. Any guesses? It's in the Northeast. Boston. I heard someone. Boston. I moved to Boston. And so everyone in Massachusetts loves their sports teams. We have the Patriots, the Red Sox, the Celtics, um, <laughs> and the Bruins. Um, these are teams with deep, deep history in the sports world. And this was back at the start of the Tom Brady era of the Patriots. This was before the Red Sox ever won the World Series. And so I have a funny story. Back when I was in college, the Red Sox were entering into the World Series. So this is the whole destroy the curse, breaking the curse. It's been a long time. It was lots of tension. Me and Kev decided that we would, um, a great way to make money because we were broke college students, was to make a ton of t-shirts and go down to Fenway and sell them if the Red Sox won the World Series. So some of you know that we like printing t-shirts. And so this just shows you it's been a long time that this has been like a passion of ours. So we made this whole design. We printed all these t-shirts. We made like a skull and crossbone and it said in big words across the top, destroy the curse. And we were like, this is going to make us a lot of money. And we were super excited. And we went and we showed them to Kev's dad and he was very kind and he was looking at them. And then he was like, I have to tell you something. And we were like, what? And he was like, you spelt something wrong. And we had printed all of these shirts and in big letters across the shirt, it said, destroy the curse. And we were like, no, we wanted to make some money. Uh, so our money-making scheme was dashed, but the Red Sox did win the World Series that year. And I remember being on my college campus the night they won and I literally thought the world was ending. Like, people were going insane. There was fireworks and screaming and riots and windows were getting smashed and cars were being flipped. And there's pictures in the newspaper of people, like, sitting on top of intersection lights and jumping on moving taxis. And it was crazy. And this is all out of celebration. You see, everybody is a worshiper. In the book True Worship by Bob Goughlin, he says, it's never a question of whether worship will or won't occur in the heart of the human being. It's whether that worship will travel in the proper direction and end up in the right place. So worship is aligning the passion, the vision, the energies, and your capacity towards that which matter most. It's not just what happens on Sunday. 
is what we center our whole lives around. Now, I know a lot of us are familiar with this passage. It's an amazing gospel story to read about the woman at the well. But I pray that tonight, the Holy Spirit gives us fresh eyes, that he stirs in us, in our hearts, a new vision and conviction to worship the only thing that is worthy to worship in this life. And so let's just pray with that to start. God, we come before you. We need you to give us fresh eyes to see your word come alive to us tonight. God, may it leap off the pages before us. Would you stir in our hearts to see that you are worthy, God, only you, and that that leads us to come to worship you. God, we lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, so let's go. If you have your Bible open, we're in John in chapter four. Um, But before we start reading the text, we're gonna take a quick second to remember what we talked about last week. So in chapter three, um, oh, sorry. We're gonna take a quick second to remember what happened in chapter three because I want us to see that it's not a coincidence how these two chapters contrast each other. And I think it's really cool for us to look at. In chapter three last week, Caesar preached on the passage where Jesus meets Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a morally good and extremely religious Pharisee, but he was spiritually blind to what Jesus was telling him. You see, chapter three and chapter four we're gonna be tonight are basically the same message. There's just two ends of the spectrum, and they contrast each other really cool, really beautifully. In chapter three, we have a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and in John four, we have an unnamed woman. In chapter three, Nicodemus was a man of rank. In chapter four, it was this woman of low status. In chapter three, a favored Jew. In chapter four, it was a despised Samaritan woman. In chapter three, we see Nicodemus seeking out Jesus at night. In chapter chapter three, in chapter four, we see Jesus seeking out this woman. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and we see Christ come at midday. To the self-righteous, Nicodemus says, you must be born again. And to the Gentile sinner, Jesus says, it's the gift of God. There's no greater difference in this cultural context than between Nicodemus and this woman. But they end up, we end up seeing that they need the same, they have the same need. They both suffer from spiritual blindness and self-reliance. They're misplacing their worship. It's just two sides of the same coin. So in contrast to Nicodemus last week, John now introduces us to this Samaritan woman. So in verse one, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Did you hear that? And now he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. Right from the very beginning here, we see the heart of God. Just in the chapter before, we read in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And here, we see that he's going to any length to stir the heart of his people to true worship. God is passionate about meeting people right where they are. We're entering into this divine appointment from the Father. Jesus was called from heaven to go not just into a culture, but to meet one, one specific person this very day. And yes, the journey from Judea to Galilee was shorter if you cut through Samaria, but you can't deny God's sovereignty in action as we read further. Do you know that the Jews hated the Samaritans? Like deeply hated them. Everybody close your eyes for a second. I want us to think of our very worst enemy. 
Now I know none of us can think of anybody because we love everybody perfectly and everyone loves us. But if somebody popped into your mind, think of a hatred 10 times as much. It's hard to imagine. To the Jews, the Samaritans were idolaters, they were polluted ethnically, and they were religiously confused. And as a whole, they were a complete and moral disgrace. Jews would have rather traveled the longer distance around than to cross in Samaria. And we're not talking like 10 minutes quicker on the turnpike than going on Route 50. We're talking long and hard journeys by foot. Now, the fact that the Jews hated the Samaritans might be something that we know, but do we know where the hate came from? And we do we even know who the Samaritans are. After the death of Solomon, the people of God basically had a civil war. They formed into two nations. We had Israel in the north, and we had Judah in the south. The end half of the Old Testament is prophet after prophet, speaking to these two nations, begging them to come back to God, to turn back to God, and to come back together in unity. The north continues to push God away over and over again, indulging in idol worship and corruptions. Finally, a heartbroken God allows judgment to fall. The Assyrians evade and take Israel. They completely destroy everything. Over time, the Assyrians started to marry with the north, and they created a new people, the Samaritans. And then, because of this, they start to begin to form this like strange medley of religion, but combining the laws of Judaism and then the idolatry of the Assyrians. They are now half Jewish, half not, but they still want to worship the God called Yahweh, but they also want to include other gods and practices. They're basically picking and choosing their own type of faith. Is anyone guilty of this? <sighs> How often, right, do we pick and choose what we want to make our walk look like? It's like, God, I love you and I worship you, but I also kind of want to do this thing on the weekend because everyone else is doing it, or it makes more sense, or it feels good, or it makes me look cool. If we're honest, we all do it. We all do it to an extent, sometimes in big and blatant ways and sometimes just in small, justifiable ways, we think. We live in a day and age where Christians barely look any different than the rest of the culture. We watch the same things, we do the same things, we're addicted to the same things, social media, TV, drinking, spending more than we have, living for the next adventure, the hustle, the promotions, the list goes on and on. We are picking and choosing our own idols to worship, and at the same time, showing up to worship God on Sundays and Thursday nights. Now the Samaritans, growing in hatred, decide they're not going to accept any more books of the Bible. They acknowledge the first five. That's it. They wanted nothing to do with wisdom books and the prophets because they are all written by Jews. In the Bible, we read Ezra and Nehemiah come back to rebuild the temple in the south after everything was destroyed, and the Samaritans are horribly offended because they won't let them be a part of it. And so they're like, fine, I don't need to be a part of this. We're going to go build our own place of worship on this mountain over here. And so they go and build their own temple and deepening the divide. They now are separated by language, religion, an ongoing hatred, war, and now they have two places of worship and two ways of worshiping God. But who's right? This is the big question that's been dividing them forever. 
animosity grows and grows. And yet here, in the very beginning of chapter four, we find Jesus going to the place that no good Jewish man would ever go. Why? Because God loved who? The world. God loved the world. And so we read, he came to a town called Sychar, verse five, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Here we are. Jesus arrives on the scene. The sixth hour would be sometime between 12 and three, the hottest time of the day. And man, you guys that work at Disney, I went to Disney once in the summer thinking that it was gonna be okay. It was not. It was so hot. I literally wanted to die. And, but here's Jesus sitting here, Tired and hot, he's sitting on the well. Verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. In this cultural context, women traveled in groups, not just to socialize, but to share the load of work as they got water. And the best time to do that, because it's hard work, you're carrying almost 40 pounds of water on your head, was before the sun was up or before the, after the sun set. Knowing all this allows us to see that something is already very wrong with this picture. This woman chose this horrible hour of the day to come and draw water because she knew no one else was gonna be there. She was alone, she was hot, she did not wanna be seen. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. We enter right into this very uncomfortable situation. One man and one woman do not socialize in this context, especially one Jewish man and one Samaritan woman. He is asking for her to use one of her utensils to draw water up and to give it to him. Now, if a Jewish man touched something that was touched by a Samaritan, it makes him spiritually unclean before God. But is he actually asking for water? How could this woman, a poor, despised sinner, give to Jesus? She couldn't. She had to receive herself before she could give anything. In her broken state, she had nothing. Spiritually, she was bankrupt. And this is what Jesus is getting at. He is pressing this on her so that she might be led to ask of him. Give me, he says, immediately calling attention of the sinner to himself. He is bringing her face to face with her, her helplessness. He is showing her herself so that he can show her himself. Have you ever heard people say, God doesn't put you or ask of you in situations you can't handle? I feel like I grew up thinking that, but my mindset was all wrong. It's totally, my mindset was totally self-reliant and based on my own abilities. But God wants us to wake up, to see that we aren't capable on our own. He wants us to seek from him the grace and strength we need to do all that he calls us to. Listen to her response. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask from me, ask a drink Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. She answers super defensively. Put yourself in her situation for a moment. She's a woman in deep pain that has been pushed out, abused, despised. She's here in the middle of the day because she wants to be alone and she wants to be unseen. And now, she, now she's here, not only with a man, but the man who is culturally her biggest enemy. It's like a big old, how dare you? Remember, we were contrasting Nicodemus and the woman at the beginning. But here, we see that the very same words first spoken to Jesus in both cases are very skeptical how. 
With Nicodemus, Jesus revealed himself as truth. And here in John 4, we see his grace come through. Jesus needed to break down the religious prejudices of a Pharisee. And here we see the grace that was needed to meet the deep need of this woman. Are you full of hows and skepticism? The Bible is the full revelation of God's truth. And so often we read it and like Nicodemus, we're like, how? And the grace of God is ever before us in all its tender and gentle love. And like the woman, we're quickly respond, how? We want to reason with God and make sense before we believe the truth of God and receive the grace he offers. This is why the Samaritan woman is standing before Jesus Christ himself and the blindness of her natural heart is to only only see the animosity towards him. You, a Jew, she says. She saw in him nothing but the old prejudices. In Isaiah, it says, we saw no beauty in him that we should desire him. And that's just it. We don't. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal the fullness of who Jesus is to us. We need to be brought out of darkness into light, and we won't do that on our own. We can't. We see Jesus respond, if you know the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. Her response, or his response, was probably super shocking to her. Here she thinks this Jewish man is here to start something. But there's no yelling. There's no derogatory comments. He just says, you have no idea who's in front of you. And I'm actually here to give you something. Jesus says, I have come to give you living water. The Old Testament talks about living water to mean salvation or God's spirit or God himself. God himself is called the fountain of life or the spring of living water. In John 7, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. Wells, too, have also played an important part in the Bible. They are the source of life, but we also see redemptive history and marriages all happening around wells in the Bible. And here, this woman is being invited into a marriage with the living God at a well. She doesn't even see it coming, but it's an invitation for full inclusion, restoration, and satisfaction of her deepest need. And so she says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is like, hey, you get this. You come here every day, once or twice a day. You get water and then the next day you have to what? do it again. And then the next day you have to do it again. It doesn't last. But what I offer you is living water. It lasts. It's permanent. It comes as a spring. It's eternal life right in you. This spring, my spirit, will lead you to physical resurrection, forgiveness, and hope, a restored dignity. This well will well up 
that means that it will leap, jump, bring to life, dance. This fountain is bottomless. This fountain is full of motion, and this fountain is vertical. It will connect you to somewhere. You see, those who trust in me, Jesus says to her, will never look outside again for satisfaction because when I move in, and I mean really move in, I flip everything upside down and you will never be thirsty again. Probably, again, not what she's expecting. Her mind is occupied with only what she can see in front of her. She wanted to know how he thought he was going to give her water with no utensils. What a picture of all of us, right? We're so caught up in our day-to-days with what we see just right in front of us. We are kept away from the things of Christ by distraction. I'm going to say that again. We are kept away from the things of Christ by distraction. The devil is so sneaky and subtle. More often than not, his greatest weapon in deception are just little lies, little twists of everyday things, that we can easily justify, or worse, we don't even realize how much they're taking us away from our source of living water. The devil does not care. It can be as deep and harmful as porn or drugs or socially acceptable like busyness or TikTok. It makes no difference to him. He just wants you to take your gaze off of Jesus and move it anywhere else. It really does not matter to him. I mean, she's standing, talking to the God of her father, Jacob, the one who wrestled Jacob and renamed him Israel, and she's missing it. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. She's still talking about the physical act of drawing water. He asked her for a drink, and she responded, How? He told her of the gift of God, and she replied with, Where? And now Jesus is speaking of this everlasting well, and she's only concerned with being spared the inconvenience of having to come get water. Jesus is not offering a quick fix for our daily tasks. This next part changes everything. So often, we need to be reoriented. Our eyes are moved off of Jesus, and we need to be redirected back from these false longings, back to Jesus. And we need Jesus to do that for us so we can get back to his living water to be refreshed. And so Jesus plunges in here. And we are all like, yeah, living water. And Jesus is like, let's talk about your sin. And we're all like, no, thank you. We want to move on. Because worship is not just an invitation to living water. Worship is a confrontation. So Jesus says to her, "Go go call your husband and come here. Oh man, she probably wanted to pass out. It was going so well, she was thinking, and then bam, oh wait, didn't you just say you had living water? She's probably like, ah, for once, I thought I was having a conversation that didn't have to include my past or my present, and now here I am. I'm defined, again, by my past. I can't escape it. Doesn't he realize I came here in the middle of the day because I don't want anybody to see me. I don't want to have to talk about anything. Jesus loves her too much to let her stay there because what she is offer, what he is offering is better than what she has ever had before. True love confronts all the things inside of us that are broken and destructive. Jesus loves you too much. He will not let those things stay in your life. And so he says, go and get your husband. 
what would Jesus say to you? Go get your, go bring your, I want to talk about, ooh, does that make you feel so nervous? You're kind of squirming a little in your seat. Before you shut down, I want you to really hear something. I want us to look at what's paired with the word go. It's not go, go over there, go, sit, in your, sit and dwell in your sin. What does he say? Go and come, come back, come back to me. Jesus will confront, but he will not condemn you. Jesus did not travel all the way to Samaria to condemn this woman and keep her in her shame. No, he came to set her free, to restore her identity and to give her back her, ident- her dignity. So go and come, he says. You can tell that she's still pretty uncomfortable. The woman answers him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's like, She's starting to understand. She's starting to see. She calls him a prophet. But you can also tell she's really not comfortable. She gives a half-truth about her husband, and we see that Jesus isn't going to let it fly. He came here today to meet her. Jesus came all the way from heaven so that on this day, he could meet her. He refuses to let her run from his perfect love. But the only way this love will be embraced is for her to be exposed. Jesus never humiliates anyone, but he will humble us so that we can be healed. You know when you feel really uncomfortable in a situation or conversation? What do you do? I, and most of us I think, will probably try to deflect. You change the subject quick, right? This is what she does. Do you see it? This is why it was important for us to understand the why behind the hatred of who the Samaritans were, because now we can have some understanding of why she says this. It got really personal. She was totally exposed. And she's thinking, I have to get out of this. I have to change the subject right now. And so what does she do? She says, our fathers worshiped on the mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She brings up the most controversial question she could to a Jewish man. And if I... If I just get him going about religious things, she's probably thinking, it will take the focus off myself, and then we can keep going. Aren't we the same? Keeping Jesus kind of at arm's length. Jesus neither indulges her or ignores her. He answers, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation comes from the Jews. Jesus is like, "Uh, you're both wrong. He has to confront this because worship is about spirit and it's about truth. Pure worship will always reject man-made compromises. We have the religious Jewish elite on one side corrupting the temple with self-righteousness and we have the Samaritans on the other side who have rejected half of God's word. And it's not about where you're going to worship at all, but actually, if you actually know the God you're worshiping. Worship is about Jesus, and Jesus will always come in and look for where we are off base so we can worship in a way that's pleasing to him. 
Jesus is like, look, no offense, but salvation actually comes from the Jews because I'm Jewish and I'm the Messiah. Get ready because I'm about to tell you that. Remember, you, the Samaritans, only accepted the first five books of the Bible. So you follow history from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses. Fine. But then everything that happens from Moses to Malachi, you don't believe and actually it mattered. Salvation comes from the Jews. She, he's telling her she doesn't adequately know God anymore because she has him mixed up with lies of her own culture. He continues, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. I love this quote from a commentary that I read. It says, what Jesus is saying to this very brilliant woman is the earthly location of worship is a secondary concern in heaven. The temple merely acts as a place to focus our attentions in a distracted world. The object of worship is primary in heaven and secondary here in Samaria. <sighs> Don't you love that? The object of worship is primary in heaven. The object. The Lord wants genuine Spirit-empowered worship. You've got to know the God you're worshiping, and then he needs to move into your life so that you can worship him. Like we read in John 7 a few minutes ago, Jesus is the only one who gives his life-giving spirit and enables us to know, love, and worship God the Father through Jesus Christ. The woman then says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, I will tell him he will tell us all things. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. She's acknowledging that she knows someone is coming so, and someone that they're waiting on. I mean, could you imagine Jesus' face waiting to tell her this next line? I feel like I'd like want to look and his face would be like bursting, like I can't wait to tell you. He says, it's me, it's me. I'm right here in front of you. In the Greek, the line reads, I am he which is so profound. Remember that God, what God says his name is to Moses at the burning bush, I am. He's speaking so intentionally to where she's at. The greatest prophet to the Samaritans was Moses. I mean, they don't believe in anything else after that. And Jesus stands in front of this woman and reveals to her exactly who he is. He is the burning bush. He is the great I am. I mean, it's like the biggest mic drop ever. So I've been deeply obsessed with the book of Revelation for the last few months. It's so good. And it's God's last words in the Bible. And I don't know honestly why it's taken me so long to study it. I think I was avoiding it like it would be scary or hard. I don't know. But it has been a mighty word to my heart. The book of Revelation is like this insider look to when the curtains pull back from between heaven and earth. It's the reality of what's going on in heaven right now. Like not in the future, but right now. We forget that God is bigger than our small little window here on earth. In Revelation 1, John hears a voice and looks and sees the full revelation of Jesus Christ in all his glory. It's penetrating and powerful. And half the time John uses language like in the likeness of because there's not even vocabulary for it. He sees Jesus amongst his people wearing a long robe, a gold stash, sash, 
His hair is white like wool or snow, it says. His eyes, flames of fire. His feet, bronze. His voice like a mighty wave. And out of his mouth comes this two-edged sword. It's so intense that John falls down before Jesus in worship and wonder and submission. He writes, like I was dead, which honestly is that wording cracks me up, but it's the only appropriate response after seeing Jesus who, for who he really is. Have you ever been so captivated by Jesus that you're willing to fall down before him? Yes, in our hearts, but how about physically? in humility and repentance and surrender. There is something that impacts our heart in the physical act of lifting up our hands or getting on our knees before Jesus, isn't there? So what keeps us from doing that? Now I promise the heart of this message is not about raising your hands in church, but I do wanna tell you a story. I grew up in a pretty conservative church. Everything was orderly and reverent, and traditional. We had an acoustic guitar, simple chords, and a piano. No one would dare raise their hands. I mean, if a clap broke out, you man, it was, watch out. <laughs> Everything was very contained. And so I grew up in a learned tradition where showing any kind of outward expression towards Jesus was frowned upon, too emotional even. Fast forward to being a grown woman, married, attending a church in New York. I loved worship. But still, I wouldn't raise my hands in church. I felt it. Sorry. And, but this, is, this, this part's important because I don't want you to hear that it's about raising your hands. I want you, in worship and prayer, I felt God moving in my heart for affection for him. Over and over again, I felt it welling up inside of me. And you know what I did? Nothing. I did nothing. I was embarrassed. I thought, if I raise my hands in church, everyone's going to look at me. And I thought, I mean, we were in church. Why? It's like the only place that's not embarrassing to raise your hand to praise God was in church. But I felt embarrassed. I couldn't do it. Even though I felt it inside of me, it is what I wanted to do from the depths of my soul. A friend had sent me a message. And it was a sermon from a, a pastor in Tennessee. And I listened to it. And it was about worship and surrender. And it was so convicting to me. As soon as I stopped, I went to Kev, tears in my eyes, and I was like, I have to confess something to you. I want to raise my hands in church, but I'm embarrassed. And that was it. Speaking it out loud and acknowledging it, Jesus freed me from myself to worship him how deep down I knew that I wanted to. To fall at the feet of Jesus is to finally come to the place that your reputation doesn't matter anymore, our pride doesn't matter anymore. It is to come to a place that Jesus is all that matters. I was so concerned with following fear and not worshiping God the way that he was calling me to. Here in Revelation, John saw the penetrating gaze of his glorious king looking straight at him, exposing everything hidden inside. He saw his filthiness in light of Jesus' pure robes. He was pierced to the core by his two-edged sword. And John was undone. I think he thought he was going to die right there. He falls straight to the ground. And then the most amazing thing happens. In Revelation 1.17, it says, But he laid his right hand on me. Jesus reached out to John and touched him. 
just like the Samaritan woman. Jesus brought forth her sin. She couldn't run, she couldn't escape. Jesus didn't leave her there either. He said, go and come back. He restores her and satisfies her every desire through the giving of himself. This is in fact what Jesus does with, always does when a person comes to the place of seeing his or her own desperate sinfulness in light of his perfect holiness and bows down before him in humility and need. Jesus touches us and gives us new life. So what is the fruit of this? What happens next? True worship is what follows. It's a celebration. It's joy and freedom and healing and endless worship. We see the Samaritan woman respond in worship. The true and living God has been revealed to her. She came face to face with her sin and God fulfilled his promise. She receives his living water. And what does she do? She goes running, not humiliated, but humbled, healed and set free to tell everyone. I mean, she goes running right back into that town that, she, that shamed her to the same people she was trying to escape in the midday. And she yells, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. That's crazy. She was not ashamed of her story anymore. Jumping back into the book of Revelation in chapter four, John moves on and we get to see an act of true worship taking place in heaven right now. In Revelation 4, 2, it says, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. In the middle of everything that John saw, what stood out the most? It wasn't a geographical location, but it was a throne. And not just any throne, but an occupied throne. God sits on the throne of the universe, radiating from his being, his holiness, the beauty of his character, the magnificence of his mercy, the brilliance of his plans and purposes, and the majesty of his sovereign reign. God is the center. His, th- his throne is surrounded by glory and song. It's an endless party of worship around God's throne in heaven. We read of the elders and the living creatures singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and worthy are you. And not only do we see the God on the throne, what else do we see? We see the lamb. We see the only one who is worthy of opening the scroll of God's redemptive plans for all of history. It's Jesus. When the scroll is opened, it brings forth a new song of celebration in heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals. For you, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy, worthy, worthy. And so we end. God is seeking true worshipers. Does this heavenly scene with Jesus at the center awaken something deep inside of you? Does it instill in you a yearning to sing this heavenly song too? Because Jesus said the time is now. We don't have to wait to join the song in heaven. Is your heart moved by the worthiness of Jesus like the Samaritan woman? Or if you're really honest, does it make you yawn? 
there is no tug in your hearts, no longing to be part of this celebration around the throne of Jesus, maybe we need to ask ourselves some hard questions. Maybe we need to ask, what in my life is stealing my worship? Where am I looking for satisfaction that ultimately belongs to Jesus? We can pray. We can pray and we can ask God to work in our lives by his spirit to awaken that kind of passion for his presence. I just celebrated my 39th, 40th birthday a few weeks ago. And while a fancy dinner and a nice trip were super amazing, all I really wanted was a worship night with people that I really cared about. And it wasn't to prove that I was super spiritual or holy. Sorry. It was because after 40 years, if I can give you any words of wisdom, it's guys, I have misplaced my worship time and time again. And I've tasted what the world has to offer. And it is nothing Nothing compared to what life in Jesus is like. Nothing. All I wanted was to worship the only thing worthy in this life. My King, my Savior, my Father, and my friend. I pray that that's my heart and that's your heart. That it's eager in surrender, joyful in celebration, eyes fixed on the worthiness of Jesus more and more every year that we're alive. Worship centers everything. Jesus will satisfy every desire and longing that you have. He's inviting you in. Does he have your attention? Let's pray. God, worthy, worthy are you. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. God, we need your spirit to remove our blindness. God, tonight we want to see you. Would you reveal yourself to us for who you really are, God? May we be moved to love you, God, that we can't help but bring all of our brokenness and fall down at your feet, Lord. May we trust that only you satisfy, God. And may we call out the devil's schemes in our life. In Jesus' name, Lord, break those chains of distraction and apathy and destruction in our lives. We are new creations in you. Jesus. Holy are you, God. We love you. We love you. Amen. 
Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults Podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use the message you just received and direct your heart completely towards Him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.